Today on Regionally Speaking. The numbers are in and Americans spend a record amount of money on holiday shopping. Are you experiencing a holiday spending hangover? Northwest Indiana Financial Advisor Greg Hammer is with us to provide tips on how to get 2023 finances on track. But up first, the 2023 Indiana General Assembly convened earlier this month. Among top priorities for the legislative bodies are education, women's reproductive health, and gun rights. So joining us today is the Times of Northwest Indiana Chief Political Reporter Dan Cardin to give us a look at how things are shaping up at the State House thus far. All of that and more on this edition of Regionally Speaking after the news. Regionally speaking, he's Tom Maloney and I'm Dee Dotson. The Indiana General Assembly convened at the State House earlier this month for the 2023 legislative session. This is a budget writing year, which means the session will last four months to focus on crafting a spending plan to guide the state for the next two years. Joining us now to discuss his latest stories on legislative priorities from the State House is the Times of Northwest Indiana Chief Political Reporter Dan Cardin. Dan, as always, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Happy to be here. Okay, Dan, so you've spent a great deal of time covering the State House, and even though we are just a few weeks into the session, it seems that everyone from the governor to legislative leaders and even stakeholders from around the state have their own agendas, their own priorities, including the state's, as I shared in the opening, next two-year spending plan. So let's just start there. What is Governor Holcomb proposing for the budget? Yeah, so Holcomb, Governor Holcomb, this is his final budget because, as you know, he's term limited. You can only serve two consecutive terms as governor, and then you have to take at least a term off before you come back if you want to try and do that. So this is his last budget, and he really wants to sort of, you know, create a legacy for himself in some respects. So he is proposing pretty big spending increases for public health, for mental health, for education, and he believes the state can afford it. Indiana has been taking in a lot of money. One of the side effects of high inflation and higher prices is Indiana gets more sales tax revenue because you're putting the 7% sales tax on those higher prices. So the state is seeing more money come in the door. Some of it went back out to taxpayers last year through the form of an automatic taxpayer refund. And there are some in the General Assembly who'd like to look at further tax cuts. But Governor Holcomb is saying he believes that now is the time to make some strategic investments in some of Indiana's weaknesses, and public health for him definitely is one of them. Dan, uh, Governor Holcomb has a supermajority in both the uh, the House and the Senate, so both chambers are dominated by Republicans. He himself is a Republican. What's the likelihood of these spending increases actually getting passed and going through and, and Holcomb being able to accomplish some of the things he wants to do? Yeah, it's it's a very interesting time. So Holcomb is kind of a lame duck because he can't run for re-election, but he is still the governor for the next two years. So the legislature doesn't totally want to write him off, and, and really they can't. But, you know, there is a divide within the Republican Party in Indiana over, you know, what to do with with state money. There is a not insignificant contingent of state house Republicans who believe government should be as small as possible, do as little as possible. And the best way to make sure the government 
can't do much is to make sure it doesn't have any money to do much. So they favor reducing taxes as low as possible. Other people, Governor Holcomb among them, see a certain level of basic services and maybe some amenities as necessary to attracting the kind of uh, businesses and people that they want to bring to the state. And they're saying we need to invest in this stuff if we want to continue to see population growth, see businesses come to Indiana. And not doing so is actually going to end up hurting Indiana more in the long run compared to any benefit you might get as a taxpayer getting an extra hundred bucks in your paycheck over the course of a year. So Dan, speaking of some of the budget proposals, I also note that in your your latest story, you speak about the governor proposing significant new spending on public employee and state employee salaries like police, firefighters, first responders, and even um, educators. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this is something we've seen in a lot of uh, Northwest Indiana police departments. They're all kind of offering pay raises to attract and retain their current employees. And in some respects, they're kind of poaching their employees from each other because there's right now very low unemployment, not a lot of people wanting to go into police work for a lot of different reasons. So Governor Holcomb wants to make sure that the state police doesn't run into similar recruiting problems. So he's proposing a $70,000 minimum starting salary for state police officers. He also wants to boost pay for teachers. That's, of course, set by local school boards, but most all of the money for instruction instructional costs of students in Indiana comes from the state. So they want to, the General Assembly and the governor are sort of encouraging school boards to use some extra money that they could get potentially from the state to raise teacher pay to a minimum of $40,000 starting salary and to at least a statewide average of $60,000. So Dan, let's shift gears a little bit here. Talking about uh, the state and frankly control, uh, the state wanting to make sure they have enough uh, Indiana State Police officers that they they don't see a, uh, a shortage of bodies being available. Um, let's talk about state control of education. And uh, Something that happened a couple of years ago that many listeners will remember is uh, we no longer voted for the state secretary of education. It is now a governor-appointed position. And the governor, well, some legislators at least, want the governor's appointed position as state secretary of education to appoint the Gary Schools school board. That has been met with some resistance from a couple of lawmakers, including Eddie Melton, who has put his name in the ring for Gary Mayer for this upcoming election cycle. Uh, Can you talk with us about uh, the the state control, the state takeover of the board for Gary, getting it financially um, solvent and ensuring that, you know, they can basically hand the keys back over to somebody, but we don't know who's going to actually be getting that car, right? Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Nobody, um, yeah, when the state took over the Gary School District in 2017, it subsequently eliminated the Gary School Board as an entity that exists. There's uh, sort of a an advisory board that works with the emergency management firm that's running the school district, but it has no powers. So before the state possibly could give the district back to the I guess the citizens of Gary, they need to come up with a way, come up with a new school board to create in-state law that would, in effect, run the district instead of the state running the district. Uh, And, you know, as you've seen, as we've seen in other communities, you know, the the debate is over whether or not to have an appointed school board um, or an elected school board. 
and who does the appointing, who does the electing. In this case, uh, there's a Republican plan uh, that would have the Secretary of Education appoint the school board. Uh, she would directly appoint five of the seven members, and then she would also appoint the other two members uh, based on recommendations made by the mayor of Gary, uh, Senator Melton, who is running for mayor of Gary, um, and State Representative Vernon Smith, who's an educator and long been involved in these issues, are pushing for a locally elected school board uh, that would end state control altogether because they argue that in most communities in the state, it's the local people who elect the local school board who run the schools, and Gary should be no different. I, I think there's some hesitation among State House Republicans who, as you pointed out, control everything because the last locally elected school board in Gary was the one that you know, ran out more than $100 million in debt, went, went several years without balancing the budget, didn't adjust the district particularly well for the declining enrollment that the school district saw. And in Indiana, the money follows the child when it comes to school funding. So mm -hmm. as Gary was losing these kids, they were losing state funding, but they weren't really cutting back on the spending under its old elected school board. So that's so, a big concern for a lot of people at the state house that if they allow an elected school board, we'll just be right back where we were, where the district is, in effect, bankrupt. Dan, you made mention of this in the answer, and I don't know if you know the answer, but uh, how common is this across the state of Indiana to have the state overseeing the uh, school board for a local municipality, local town, local city, whatever it might be? Right. No, this is the uh, this is the only case. Gary is a a unique um, situation here. Uh, Muncie initially was um, kind of roped into this mm -hmm. as well, but um, but they gave they gave state, the power back yeah, to Muncie, right? To they did, yeah. Sort of uh, the district that district is sort of being run in partnership now with Ball State University, which is based in Muncie. Yeah, when I went to Ball State at the time, that was a, that was a big issue, was the Ball State takeover. Um, and this was in the early aughts uh, that they were even talking about that. There was a lot of problems with Muncie Community Schools in Delaware County. Um, and so that was that was an issue that, frankly, had been almost, you know, at this point now, 20 years in the making. And Gary's situation, though, is no different. So, you know, is this a, uh, can IUN come in and maybe work with Gary? Um, you know, maybe it's a... Uh, you know, Ivy Tech, the the model is there with Ball State, right? So, so why yeah. make this a, a one off in terms of being controlled? Not only that, uh, by you know, by the state, but as you noted in the article, Dan, uh, five or four or five of the uh, the candidates wouldn't even have to live in Gary, you know, out of yeah. the seven board members. So now all of a sudden you can start pulling people from Munster and Valpo, Portage, Crown Point, Lowell, who may not have the best interest of Gary at heart and mind, right? Right. Yeah, that that was sort of, a, I think that would be a big sticking point for a lot of people in Gary that you only need a majority of Lake County residents on the board. And then the other three could actually be from anywhere in the state. So, um yeah, in theory, you could have nobody from Gary on the school board. Wait, did you see any anywhere in the state? They don't even necessarily yeah. have to be from Northwest Indiana. They just anywhere from yeah. the state. So they could all be from Indianapolis. They could all be from Fort Wayne. Well, so four of the seven would have to be from Gary or Lake County. Got it. Okay. And then the other three could be from anywhere. 
So the Secretary of Education could appoint herself to be on the Gary School Board if she really wanted to. And that's, under, again, the secretary, the secretary of Education is not a position that is voted for anymore in the state of Indiana. Correct. Okay. Yeah, and I see what you're saying about IUN or uh, Ivy Tech. I mean, that is something that could happen. I mean, w- w- one of the things to remember is the legislative process is, is long and unceasing, so we've got a lot of time uh, to sort of uh, figure this out, or the legislators have a lot of time to sort of figure this out. When is the deadline? Is the deadline still 2024 for that, or is it just when uh, the the Gary schools are solvent? So there is a, a, a part of the law that allows the Distressed Unit Appeals Board, which is running the Gary schools on behalf of the state, to say the school district is no longer distressed, mm-hmm. but there's nowhere in the law to give the district back to. So there is no Gary School Board that exists that they can give the district back to. So they do need to create a new school board either this year or, well, at some point to give the district back to. Um, even if the, even if Dueb said the district was no longer distressed, there's there's nothing they can do about it. They would, they would still be running the district until the legislature creates some kind of new school board. So the idea is to get it done this year and then by June of 24, fully transition um, the, the district out of state control into um, some type of new school board. Hey, Dan, let, let's park with uh, the conversation about education uh, for a little bit more. Sure. So recently, State Representative Earl Harris Jr., who represents the Indiana Black Legislative Caucus, he unveiled the priorities for that uh, legislative body, um, and they voiced uh, concerns about not only the state budget, but student educational achievement as well. And one of the bills is House Bill 1449, which I found interesting because the bill, if it is enacted, would it roll? students, eligible students, I should say, automatically in the 21st century scholars program. So let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah, so the state has a program called the 21st Century Scholars Program that basically will pay for eligible students to go to state colleges and universities. Um, They have to meet um, some grade criteria and things like that. But right now, to... uh, get that benefit, you have to sort of sign up for the program and people who are eligible simply either don't hear about it or nobody tells them about it and they don't sign up and don't take advantage of this opportunity to, you know, get a post-secondary credential or a college degree, little to no cost. So this idea, this has been actually a democratic idea floating around the state house for a long time to sort of automatically enroll people in this a 21st century scholars program if they meet the income and other qualifications and to make sure that that they hear about it because they would automatically be a part of it. And Governor Holcomb is actually uh, backing this idea as well. So there is some idea, some momentum for this that, you know, we've got this program. We're willing to pay for these kids to go to college. Mm-hmm. Why aren't we sending these kids to college. Really quick, uh, for, for folks listening who may not know, what is the 21st Century Scholars Program? Yeah, so it's a, it's a state program that um, more or less pays for um, uh, certain students who meet eligibility criteria to uh, attend a state university at no cost or um, seek out sort of another uh, post-secondary credential. And so let's let's 
obviously um, keep the car parked here, as Dee said, on education. And um, one of the other things that was really popular, at least in, amongst the ideas for the Black Legislative Caucus for uh, Indiana, um, was uh, bringing up uh, students of color uh, to their uh, white peers seeing a big drop-off in COVID. Uh, of course, I think part of that, frankly, has to do with the availability of the access of the internet across the state, which I think is uh, an infrastructure problem that uh, both Democrats and Republicans realized during COVID was a big problem. And, and you don't have the availability for students to have that remote learning and e-learning in some school districts like their white peers did across the state. Uh, let's let's talk about that and the uh, the decline of education uh, when it comes to students of color versus their white counterparts. Yeah, this is uh, well. I mean, this has been uh, an issue sort of across the board uh, post COVID. Yeah, we've seen student test scores at almost basically every school go down just because uh, kids weren't in the classroom learning the way that they always have. Indiana also has sort of a secondary factor that it changed its standardized test uh, right before the pandemic. And, uh, you know, anytime you change a test like that, you can expect scores to, you know, drop for two or three years right afterwards uh, until people sort of get used to the new test and how the questions are asked. The teachers adjust their teaching styles to um, accommodate the new test. So, those two things kind of hit at once. And then, of course, anytime you have this kind of thing, it tends to hit minority communities harder because, as you said, there often are fewer resources. Uh, and, um, you know, Indiana has done a pretty good job of uh, using state resources and going after federal resources to expand broadband across the state. And, um, you know, you see that in the inflation reduction plan that the federal government just passed as well. So, there will be initiatives rolling out, you know, this year and in years to come to, to sort of close that technology gap. But it's still going to take a few years to, you know, bring everybody up to speed. And the Black Caucus is saying they want more attention paid to those issues immediately rather than, you know, waiting three or four years when, you know, today's second graders are in sixth grade and they might have missed a lot of essential stuff along the way. Yeah, I, I can't help but uh, just see the parallels, and maybe it's less of a parallel and more of an eventual T-bone when it comes to um, you know something like this, trying to uh, raise up uh, students of colors, uh, test scores, and availability of education, but at the same time looking at Gary Community Schools and the lack of a school board, and then being taken over yeah. by the state that you know. Theoretically, if they both pass, keep in mind, they'd both have to pass Republican-controlled uh, House and Senate chamber and get to the governor's desk to sign off, which is very, very unlikely in this session. But theoretically, how, how well do those two ideas play together? Well, and not just those two. Uh, you know, there's efforts to expand um, education, sort of school choice options. So more charter schools, more vouchers, um, sort of a new... People are calling it a super voucher where you can just take your money and avoid the school system altogether, and the state would just give you 7000 bucks to figure out your education on your own. And then at the same time, there's House Republicans who are interested in sort of turning high schools into basically just job training centers and getting rid of everything else. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of, let's just say there's a lot of ideas floating out there right now and no clear... Um, 
idea of where we're going to end up when we get to the end of the legislative session at the end of April. Well, okay, Dan. So I thought I would be able to save this topic for last with our conversation with you today, but I I just cannot. So last summer, the GOP supermajority-led General Assembly approved Indiana's near-total ban on abortions. And recently, the Indiana Supreme Court heard oral arguments on the validity of it. So can you share the latest on the issue from the Indiana Supreme Court? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. This issue is sitting right now at the Indiana Supreme Court. They heard oral arguments, I believe, last week. And what they're reviewing is a lower court judge said that the legislation enacted last year restricting abortion in Indiana uh, violated the Indiana Constitution. She said there's a provision in the Constitution that, in effect, protects bodily autonomy, which necessarily includes the right to obtain an abortion. The attorney general's office disagrees, so he asked the Supreme Court to consider overturning that ruling. You know, both sides have submitted their written arguments to the court, and they did the oral arguments at the Supreme Court. And, you know, the Supreme Court is there to interpret the Constitution. So that's what they're going to do at some point in the near future and decide whether or not this law that bans pretty much all abortions in Indiana passes constitutional muster, or if it should be allowed to go into effect, or if it violates the Constitution and the legislature either needs to rewrite it or consider passing a constitutional amendment. And what are abortion rights advocates, including ACLU uh, legal director Ken Falk, what are, what are they saying? Yeah, so they're saying that uh, under the Constitution that Hoosiers, you know, have a right to decide for themselves, you know, whether how their bodies are used, basically. You know, if uh, you don't want to carry a pregnancy to term, you should have the freedom to decide that. Uh, the Constitution suggests as much uh, by identifying life, liberty, and pursuit of the happiness as rights each Hoosier possesses. So uh, the ACLU is saying, you know, they just want the the Supreme Court to enforce what's in the Constitution. And, you know, the trial judge in Owen County agreed with them. Uh, the attorney general says uh, those sentiments expressed at the, you know, right in Article One, Section 1 of the Constitution are just sort of you know, nice sentiments. They're not actually judicially enforceable rights. And that, you know, the court needs to look at the fact that the legislature in Indiana, before the Constitution was enacted in 1851, while it was under debate, and then for every time since, except during the period when the Supreme Court required states to allow abortions, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court required states to allow abortions, Indiana has prohibited abortions. So they're saying that the, the people of Indiana, through their elected representatives, have said, they don't want abortion in Indiana, regardless of what the Constitution says. Despite the fact that uh, support for abortions in the Hoosier state is over 50%, um, regardless of what the uh, the state legislator, legislature says it is. Um, yeah. I guess my question to that, Dan, is less about abortion and more about the framing of the state's constitution and even at a national level taking a look at you know, the framers, the founders. They said this. They would want this. They didn't live in a world where, you know, the the types of things that we're discussing now or even thought of as a possibility, um, you know, a, a lot of uh, a lot of constitutional originalists tend to make their way into law and then try to take uh, make their way into politics as well. Um, is there just a, a disconnect with those individuals who are uh, in charge of putting the laws on the books and the the citizens who elect them, or is there 
you know, does there need to be a real conversation about the framing of not only the state's constitution, but maybe, you know, the United States constitution as well, along with Indiana's, um, in terms of, you know, a framework being adjusted, so to speak? Yeah. So, there's, there, yeah, as you pointed, there's basically two things going on. The The legislature, as constituted, does not necessarily reflect the opinions of the broad swath of Hoosiers. Um, you know, critics of gerrymandering assert that the Indiana General Assembly was districts were drawn by Republicans to favor Republicans. So you get a disproportionate number of Republicans representing people whose opinions may vary from their own. Uh, abortion is one issue. Uh, marijuana legalization is incredibly popular in every public opinion poll in the state and has extremely limited support among uh, members of the General Assembly. Uh, so you have that part of it where the legislature isn't perfectly representative of the opinions of the people they're representing. But then you also have this secondary issue uh, with constitutional interpretation. You know, uh, since the Civil War, the focus on a lot of these issues has been the federal constitution, particularly the 14th Amendment. And, you know, all these abortion restrictions Indiana has enacted over the years have been challenged on federal constitutional grounds. The U.S. Supreme Court rescinding the right to abortion created by Roe v. Wade in 1973 put all this abortion uh, debate back to the states and to state legislatures. And, you know, the Indiana Constitution hasn't been litigated as much as the federal Constitution in the past century. So, you know, when they were talking about precedent for the Supreme Court to consider in relation to this Article One, Section 1 issue of the Indiana Constitution, there were a lot of cases from like the 1870s, the 1880s, the 1890s. Uh, and then everything sort of shifted to the federal Constitution. Now that it's back to the states, you know, states need to look back at their constitutions that they've been able to, you know, the rights were there in the constitution, but the federal constitution always provided more. So there was no need to really litigate on them. And now we're back to saying, well, what did these people mean in 1850 when they were saying, you know, you have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness under the constitution? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty broad grant of rights. Does that actually mean what it seems to mean? Or did they envision a much more limited uh, right to liberty or bodily autonomy and, and correspondingly uh, a right to abortion? I, I guess I can appreciate the uh, the framers of constitutions, if only for one thing. Oftentimes in school, uh, my rough draft was my first draft, was my final draft. Now, I know that uh, a lot of the state constitutions and the American constitution as well were not rough drafts and not final drafts. And, uh, you know, they, there was a lot of work and a lot of thought that went into them. But, uh, you know, oftentimes I think sometimes, you know, a rewrite helps and might get you a better grade. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it, it might be uh, might be something I, I think to worthwhile to uh, to keep an eye on, um, especially not only at, at the state level, but at the national level to, to figure out, you know, if if the framers went out when it comes to the Constitution or if there's going to be more work for individuals, um, lawmakers in general, to go ahead and, you know, uh, modernize the Constitution for the current 21st century that we live in. I don't know. We'll see what happens, I suppose, right? I mean, that is one of the best things about America is that the Constitution can always be changed. Everything can always be changed. So if enough people get together and you know, talk to their legislators or 
seek other means of, uh, you know, persuading people to make changes, you know, you can pass a constitutional amendment guaranteeing bodily autonomy or, in the alternative, banning abortion altogether. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, nothing is set in stone when it comes to the American government or the Indiana government. As much as it seems like nothing ever changes, everything potentially is open to being changed. Finally, Dan, let's take a look at the work uh, Northwest Indiana legislators are doing at the State House. Now, we spoke earlier about the work that Representative Vernon Smith, along with State Senator Eddie Melton, are doing on behalf of the State of Education. But I want to talk a bit about new legislation that was pushed through following the tragic death of a four-year-old LaPorte County child last year in his birth parents' home. What is the latest on Senate Enrolled Act 410? Yeah, so this has been uh, an issue for a couple years now. This all goes back to, like you said, a case in Laporte County where a child was being abused in his home, um, had been placed by the Department of Child Services with uh, his cousin um, in sort of a, in a foster mother situation. And uh, DCS uh, then spent considerable time trying to reunite the child with his parents, um, who the foster mother insisted was just going to abuse the child again. Um, Ultimately, the child ended up dying uh, in the care of his parents, um, and that prompted a lot of outrage that DCS was so involved in sort of putting this child back with his parents. Um, One of the issues uh, State Senator Mike Bahachek of Michigan Shores identified was that um, under current law at the time, the foster mother didn't have the right to intervene um, automatically in a court case uh, relating to sort of a child abuse uh, or child in need of services situation or a termination of parental rights. Um, only at that time, uh, only a state-licensed foster parent could do that. Uh, if it was sort of a, a relative taking care of the kids in lieu of the birth parents, they they didn't have the automatic right to participate. So uh, Senator Bahachek helped enact legislation last year, giving them the automatic right to participate And then this year, he's pursuing legislation to also um, give that um, relative foster parent access to a state-provided attorney. So if they choose to participate in a court hearing, they're represented by an attorney and not just sort of winging it on their own. And I guess to that question, I mean, we, you know, we're, we, we all remember the story when it came out and it just, it was, it was heartbreaking to, to hear this and, knowing that somebody out there had what was in the best interest of the child, you know, the, the cousin who, who wanted the child to be kept safe uh, with, with her, um, despite the fact that uh, Department of Child Services wanted to uh, bring the child back to the parent, which I think, you know, at the, at the time, and it still is very much part of the goal of the organization is to reunite the family. Um, Correct. You know, it is... I know that uh, I had a conversation with uh, State Representative Julie Oltoff uh, a couple of weeks at the State House out of uh, District 19. Have you heard of anything else with regards to um, changes to the adoption system across the state or in terms of how, how that might look or might work for uh, future parents? Yeah, it, things get a little tricky sort of in the, this pre-adoption stage when there's sort of more of this informal disposition to try and keep the kids safe. You know, when you take a kid out of an allegedly abusive home and put them with a relative, 
you're sort of trying to stabilize the home in the hopes that the kid can return because Indiana law favors keeping families together. You know, the Department of Child Services is put in sort of an almost impossible situation of trying to implement that law of reuniting families while simultaneously protecting kids. When you get to sort of a position where you're actually terminating a parent's rights, you know, then there are a lot more options when it comes to adoption. And Indiana has actually, you know, been pretty aggressive at promoting adoption. And there is some legislation this year that would basically have the state absorb the cost, all the legal costs and things like that, transition costs relating to adoption. And this that's in connection with the abortion ban that there's going to be a lot more kids around if that abortion ban is allowed to take effect. I think there were 7,000 abortions in the state of Indiana last year, and I think the right. state average is about 7,000, almost six or 7,000 per year annually prior to the ban. Right, and those are, you know, at this time, people who either don't want or can't afford or, you know, for some reason are choosing to terminate those pregnancies. So if they're forced to carry those pregnancies to term, the state's going to probably need to step in in a lot of those situations. Uh, you know, we have the, the baby box law where you can mm-hmm. drop off an infant that you don't want, um, but, you know, parents can also surrender the, a newborn at the hospital or a fire station or anywhere. There's a lot of options um, for giving up a child you don't want, and then obviously the state's going to need to find homes for those children. Yeah, and I was going to say, despite all of that, I, I can't imagine you know the weight of the, that's on the shoulders of those those mothers um, and right. potential fathers as well. You know, when you don't necessarily know all of those options, um, and and you know we don't want to read stories again where where children are left behind in in bad situations where you know they're not checked in a uh, uh, a baby box or they're not uh, they're not even given the opportunity to to be brought to. Um, you know, a, a safe location in that regard. But uh, Dan, unfortunately, we are going to have to leave it on a bit of a, a sour note here. Yeah, um, sorry about that. Sorry for being such a downer there at the end. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, a, a packed, packed, packed agenda this year for the uh, the state house, and uh, over the next couple of months, we'll see what comes out of it. Again, including uh, education access for students of color and comparison to their their white counterparts as well as uh, what is going to happen to Gary Community Schools and the currently non-existent school board and uh, potentially what happens here and into the next year and a half or so along with a lot of other things. Dan, we'll, uh, we'll keep you on speed dial here over the next couple of weeks. I'll answer anytime. Dan Cardin is the chief political reporter for the Times of Northwest Indiana covering both local as well as statewide government. You can read Dan's latest stories both online and print by visiting www.nwitimes.com. This is Regionally Speaking. On August 10th, 2022, President Biden signed the Sergeant First Class Heath Robinson honoring our promise to address comprehensive toxics of 2022, also known as the PACT Act, into law. This law helps the Department of Veterans Affairs provide generations of veterans and their survivors with the care and benefits they earned and deserve. Joining us today to talk about all of the benefits of this new law is Ronald S. Burke, Jr., Deputy Undersecretary, Office of Policy and Oversight with the Veterans Benefits Administration, Department of Veterans Affairs. Ronald, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. 
my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, so as I shared in my opening, on August 10th, 2022, President Biden signed the PACT Act into law. If you will, please take a moment to share with our listening audience, what is the PACT Act? The PACT Act is the most expansive legislation that we've seen in our history. It will impact potentially millions of our veterans and survivors. The PACT Act has added more than 20 presumptive conditions for our veterans that were exposed to burn pits or other toxins. It has added additional presumptive locations for our veterans that were exposed to Agent Orange or radiation. And it also provides for a free toxic exposure screening for all veterans currently enrolled with the Veterans Health Administration. Who is eligible for benefits under the PACT Act? The PACT Act impacts veterans from the Vietnam era, the Gulf War era, and post-9-11 era. It also impacts survivors of those very veterans. What conditions will be added to the list of service-connected illnesses, and when will they be in effect for veteran and survivors to file claims? So there are more than 20 conditions that can be found at va.gov slash PACT. Uh, Many cancerous conditions and other uh, conditions are certainly listed on that site. Uh, And veterans and survivors can actually file claims now. Uh, If the Veterans Health Administration has already conducted more than 1.4 million toxic exposure screenings, and the Veterans Benefits Administration has received more than 265,000 claims since August 10th, and we've already decided more than 85,000 of those And so we're encouraging veterans and survivors to please apply now. Do not delay. If a veteran was previously denied a claim for any of these conditions, or if a survivor was denied a claim for any of these conditions, or if a survivor was denied dependency and indemnity compensation, what can they do? Veterans that were previously denied and survivors that were previously denied, they're encouraged to file another claim. They can do so by accessing va.gov.pac. They can file a claim in any one of our VA regional offices. They can file claims electronically in person. They can utilize the assistance of an accredited representative at the county, state, or national level. Uh, But we want those folks, if they believe they're entitled and they think they have entitlement under the PACT Act, to please file their claims now. What actions should veterans take who have never filed a claim for one of these conditions? I would encourage veterans who have not yet filed a claim to do so. They can also go to va.gov slash PAC. They can file a claim at any one of our VA regional offices, and they should also be comfortable looking at the list of accredited representatives on our website who may be able to assist them with filing their claim. Ronald S. Burke Jr. is the Deputy Undersecretary, Office of Policy and Oversight, Veterans Benefits Administration, Department of Veterans Affairs. So will family members or dependents, either those who have lost a loved one during the adjudication process or those who lost a loved one who was previously denied a claim, receive any benefits from the VBA because of the PACT Act? For survivors uh, under the criteria that you just mentioned, we are doing direct communication efforts uh, with those surviving family members, letting them know about their entitlement. And they should also be encouraged to visit our website and file their claims as they may be entitled to benefits under the passage of the PACT Act. Will this cause an increase to the current claims backlog? And furthermore, how does the VBA plan to address this big influx of claims? Uh, This will impact our backlog. We've been open and transparent about the fact that this will increase our backlog, but we're focused on serving veterans. And to that end, we have deployed some tools and technology 
We have hired, we are recruiting and training employees. In fact, last year we hired nearly 2,000 new employees. This year we're on track to hire an additional 1,900 employees. And we're training those employees to help with the increased demand. Uh, But my message would be to veterans, file now. We are prepared. We are processing those claims now. And in fact, if any of your listeners are interested in joining the calls and serving other veterans, uh, we are hiring. Please apply. We're, we're, we're welcoming uh, a lot of new employees uh, to handle the surge. And finally, Ronald, what evidence will veterans and survivors be required to submit when filing a claim? Survivors may be asked to provide a copy of a death certificate to support their claim. Veterans may be asked to submit medical records in their possession, whether they're private records, possibly service records, And they may be subjected to a compensation and pension examination. But that information, again, can be found on va.gov slash PAC. And that list of accredited representatives that I mentioned are available to assist them with the process. Ronald S. Burke, Jr. is the Deputy Undersecretary, Office of Policy and Oversight, Veterans Benefits Administration, Department of Veterans Affairs. Ronald, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking today, sharing all of the information with our listening audience about the PACT Act. Thank you very much. It was my honor. And welcome back to Regionally Speaking on listener-supported Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM, and streaming online at lakeshorepublicradio.org. Households spent a record amount of money on holiday shopping and even hit over $9 billion in online sales for the first time during Thanksgiving weekend. But now, the bills are finally arriving from those credit card purchases. Are you feeling the effects of a holiday spending hangover? Many financial advisors state their wealthy clients did not come from wealthy families. They were just really good at saving, budgeting, and learning how to make the right financial moves. Whether it's strategizing the best tax moves, ideals for creating a sensible budget, or implementing an investment strategy that helps you stay ahead of inflation, Northwest Indiana financial advisor Greg Hammer can provide tips on how to get your finances on track for 2023 and create a plan that can help you build your wealth for the future. Greg Hammer is the president and CEO of the Hammer Financial Group. The Hammer Financial Group is a retirement planning and wealth management firm. Greg, as always, thank you so much for joining us on Regionally Speaking. Thanks for having me, Andy. Absolutely, Greg. So for our listeners that are feeling they splurged too much this holiday season, the new year is a great time to get their finances back on track. Where should they start? I think always the biggest thing is start with building a strong foundation. And and really what I mean by that is, you know, a strong financial house starts with, you know, understanding kind of what the journey looks like. It, you know, understanding what you have coming in and what's being spent or what's going out. And, you know, once you know those numbers, then you can develop an effective budget, not only to pay down potential debt that you might have, but more importantly, to, you know, to start a saving plan. If you already have a budget, review it especially with a lot of the things that are going on with the interest rates changing, how you may have leveraged some of your debt, um, how much it's costing you versus what it was a little bit ago. Um, have you had major life changes? Did you have a baby? You know, when are your kids going to college? Are you winding down in your career, You know, getting close to retirement? We can go on and on, but these major changes is you still want to look at and address and see where you potential opportunities are to either you know cut back financially or to add you know additional budget for savings. And, and again, if you have debt, be sure to develop a plan 
that fits within your budget so you can pay it off quickly. So, Greg, I'm going to be honest with you. Finances can be overwhelming. And unfortunately, when people are overwhelmed, they can easily develop analysis paralysis. What are your suggestions to get people unstuck? Well, I think, you know, the easiest way is to kind of educate yourself a little bit on personal finance. You know, it's, I always tell people you don't need to understand how the car runs, but you need to understand how to take care of your car, right? And it's no different with finances. You don't have to get granular, but everyone, and I mean everyone, can educate themselves on, on financial topics. You know, you can watch some of the news, whether it be CNBC, read some of the Wall Street journals, you know, just learn a little bit about wealth knowledge, terminology, and investment concepts, you do want to be cautious. You know, sometimes when it's printed, you know, it doesn't mean that it's gospel, so to speak. But at the end of the day, what you want to do is read some information that might be available to you through either local library, free, or things that you decide to purchase, you know, as part of a subscription and and grow with it. And, you know, learn from educational workshops. Educational workshops are available, you know, in the community. They're available to employees a lot of times, and these opportunities to learn about personal finance are endless. And the more you immerse yourself in the topic, the more you know you build that confidence to make decisions. Right. So we mentioned earlier that many wealthy people did not, in fact, come from wealthy families, but they were really good at saving and making the right financial moves. What is one of those financial moves? Well, I'm a big believer in paying attention to your taxes, not just getting them done. You know, we talk about tax preparation is kind of looking backwards, where tax planning and tax management is looking forward and looking for opportunities that you just don't want to think about in April, but are ways to reduce the tax burden now and in the future. And there's so many opportunities now, and Congress is notorious for changing tax laws and retirement laws, and people need to stay on top of those changes, and they can pivot their strategy. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, as an example, has created tax planning opportunities the last several years that hasn't existed for most of my career, and it is ending. So just understanding a little bit more about what those opportunities are, and then more importantly, taking advantage of them. Okay, so I have another question, Greg. What are some strategies that people tend to forget about? Well, some of the simple things are, are like things like updating your insurance policies, right? Um, we, you know, nobody likes to, you know, address insurance, pay for insurance, think about insurance, but reviewing your insurance policies to make sure they're current and that you're capitalizing on the best rates. You know, is there a potential to save money in there? And um, are they addressing all the things that we want as the concerns in our life? And, you know, research additional coverages. What is the right coverage to match your needs or your finances? You know, things like, you know, are you the sole provider? Do you have enough life insurance to take care of your family? Do you have disability? if you develop a short-term illness or had an injury, you know, whether or not you think you long, need long-term care insurance. It's smart to you know, just start researching some of these options. I have just recently began to dig into investing, and it's a lot of trial and error for me. I'm kind of learning as I go. But what are some investment strategies that you can offer to help stay ahead of inflation? Well, historically, you know, investing in vehicles that correlate to the market over time. And what I mean by over time is not overnight, right? We always are big advocates about positioning assets for purpose. So if I, part of my purpose is beating inflation, and your investment returns must be larger than the cost of living to stay ahead of it. And historically, you know, the market has had bigger returns when you play the long game. You don't want to try to beat it with quick returns. But positioning it for that later needs like inflation, um, will uh, the market usually provides the best opportunity to do that. Greg, you're making some really great points. 
So finally, we discussed the importance of saving for retirement all of the time. But is there anything new? Yeah, actually, uh, the Congress just passed the SECURE Act 2.0 at the end of last year, and it's actually changed quite a few of the opportunities, especially when it comes to how you can save money towards retirement. Um, So years ago, people didn't have to think about saving as much because companies had pensions, but pensions pensions are not the main streamline anymore. So we have to contribute to our own plan. And unfortunately, most Americans are way behind and they're not as prepared as they should be. Well, the SECURE Act 2.0 has allowed ways for Americans of different ages at different stages of their life to increase their potential saving opportunities through some of those plans. Uh, you know, your contributions could be to the 401ks, your Roths, your SEPs, and different things that you can do with, uh, you know, monies that might be left in a 529 plan. They've changed some of the required distribution ages. So all these different saving opportunities and new IRA catch-ups and changes to withdrawals from your retirement accounts create opportunities. So it would it would make sense just to go ahead and look at some of those provisions in the bill. Um, some won't go into effect right away. Um, some will be a year from now and as late as 2025. But it is the easiest way to look through an employer to see, hey, can I contribute more money, have it done automatically, and uh, especially if they're matching. And in addition to employer plans, you can look at, you know, different opportunities that exist now with, you know, your more traditional individual accounts like your IRA and Roth IRAs. Greg Hammer is the CEO and president of Hammer Financial Group. Greg, as always, thanks for joining us on Regionally Speaking, and we look forward to having you back with us next month. Well, thank you for having me, Dave. Really enjoy it. Hammer Financial Group is a retirement planning and wealth management firm located right here in Northwest Indiana. For more information about the Hammer Financial Group, you can visit their website, hammerfinancialgroup.com. And that's it for Originally Speaking for this week. Thanks to our guests from the Times of Northwest Indiana, Chief Political Reporter Dan Cardin, from the Department of Veterans Affairs, Deputy Undersecretary Ronald S. Berg, and from Hammer Financial Group, Greg Hammer. And we'll be back with you next Friday with an all-new show.